KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Israel has his humor. I mean, you know, you know the joke, right? I mean, someone asked about our history, right? They tried to kill us. We survived. Let's eat. Ray's got his perspective. When I take a shower, I, I, I appreciate it. When I when I go inside of my bed and I have this cozy blanket and these pillows and everything is fresh and clean and I, I, I thank it and I savor the moment and I'm so grateful and I'm so thankful because I'm looking at what's going on and I'm like, oh my God, like people can't take a shower. This is just a small glimpse at how two men from the Philadelphia area are coping with the Israel-Hamas war. One is Jewish. One is Palestinian. Their views on the events of the last two-plus months are almost entirely opposite. How are we supposed to have peace with the partner that doesn't want peace? Answer me that question, and then maybe we can have other discussions. So anyone that says have a ceasefire, they're usually an anti-Semite. And I don't like to throw words out like that. Am I justifying what happened? Absolutely not. I'm just trying to show you a picture that the Palestinians are not like that. They're desperate. The world is ignoring them. I'm Carol McKenzie from KYW News Radio in Philadelphia. Passions are intense, convictions unwavering. There is very little gray space, perhaps none between those who support and those who oppose the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza. When we set out to do a podcast about the war, we didn't want to do hard news updates or analysis. Instead, we wanted to take a human-first approach. What kind of toll is this taking on our Palestinian and Jewish neighbors? I'm going to speak. I'm going to love. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be a better human being because of what I am seeing. Why do you think there's so many Jewish comedians? The Marx Brothers, the Stooges, all that. It's because, because from tragedy comes humor. The story we're about to tell you here is about two men whose ancestral lands are only 90 miles apart. They are inherently divided by the Israel-Hamas war. But there's also a lot that connects them. Their family lineage and how their identities are informed by the past the way the fallout from the October 7th Hamas terror attack and the death and devastation in Gaza has affected their lives and their livelihoods and how the conflict is now bringing them face-to-face with a dire question. Can you coexist when you feel like the very existence of your people is being threatened by the other? If we have a ceasefire, you're going to have more death. So if the goal is to have less death, then we have to have death to have less death. Now that sounds counterproductive, or but that's the truth. You got two options. You could accept the world dehumanizing them and treating them this way, or you could educate yourself, become a successful person, and defend them. The choice is yours. From KYW News Radio Original Podcast, this is The Baker and the Grocer. Stories of the Israel-Hamas War.
I had just gotten to Rowling's Bakery in Cheltenham Township, a suburb just outside of Philadelphia. Don't be offended. I don't shake the whole Jewish thing. That's okay. Yeah, so don't be offended. I mean, as soon as I walked down the short set of cement stairs leading from the parking lot to a glass door, I was introduced to Israel rolling and one of his religious customs. The only people I touch is my wife and my, my girls, my grandmother. I'm obviously my wife. I got six kids, so that makes sense. <laughs> but, uh, so, but no, I mean, I can still be pleasant without touching. That's okay. okay <laughs> the no touching Israel was talking about was my attempt to shake his hand my natural inclination when greeting someone, but I had forgotten that Jewish orthodoxy prohibits this, a rule Israel once thought silly. So I didn't ever grow up at all in religious. So I, even when I was starting to learn about it, I said, this is ridiculous. So it was like, it's like I had to change my whole mindset. So suddenly now I'm not touching. You're also supposed to watch how, what you hear, you know, what you see, what you smell. It's like all the senses. Yeah. Everything. Like, what, Israel what, what, Rowling what is 48 years old. He's ultra-Jewish Orthodox and lives by some of the strictest, most literal interpretations of the religion. When I met him at his bakery at the end of November, he was dressed in the way many Orthodox men dress. He was wearing a yarmulke, the circular Jewish head covering, and had seat seat, fringed tassel-like strings tucked under his black polo shirt. His pants and shoes were also dark-colored and covered with the inevitable dusting of flour. We're very, very well known. People say Rollings is our challah. Some people like like uh, bagels tend to be cultish. So if people eat our bagels, like like all the New Yorkers like to come to us. Ah, oh, finally a real bagel. Uh-huh. I tell people the bagels in the supermarket are Wonder Bread bagels. Yeah. Rollings is a pretty tight space. Once you walk through the front door, you practically run into the glass display cases of baked goods. I think we have to point out, though, there are a lot more than bagels here. Oh, yeah. So the cakes we do, we specialty cakes, seven layers, caramel cakes, apple cakes, all the assortment of pies. That's Barbara. She's my great aunt. Barbara, you want to say hi? Hi. Hi. She's been with me for uh, 16 or 17 years. She's amazing. In the back of the shop is where the magic happens. Wooden tables where the challah and other baked goods are rolled. Massive mixers. Trays of cookies and pastries stacked on top of each other. Chocolate croissants you just made. Wow. So how we keep things fresh is we make it, we stick it in the freezer, right? A binder full of Rowling's original recipes was also tucked away back there. It looked like a mystic spell book. The leather cover was caked in powder. The edges of each sheet browned from years of thumbing. This is rugelach. We make rugelach. Some people call them schnecken. Here. Oh, thank you. Here. You want chocolate? You. you want nut? <laughs> now bite down. You can do it. There you go. Oh, my God. Okay, this is it for you later when I don't have to use my hand. So that's apricot nut. Here, this is the chocolate cookie we make. Here, the other hand, you have two hands. <laughs> thank you. My father always said when, he, when people are working, God gave you two hands. Like Israel Rolling, the bakery sticks to the letter of Jewish law. The shop is certified kosher. Well, the kosher certificate, it's called Keystone K. It's the highest level of, of kosher in Philadelphia. Israel's parents, Sam and Rita, opened Rollings in 1975, the same year Israel himself was born. In the 48 years it's been around, Rollings has become a neighborhood institution, especially for this part of Montgomery County's Jewish community. This community has been terrific to me, so it's, it's reciprocated. I always, t- I always tell my customers that the, the bakery is as good as the customers. Bakery is very good. I must have good customers.
But these days, it's hard for him and his customers to see each other without acknowledging their broader pain. Anyone that walks in the bakery, we just look at anybody Jewish, anybody Jewish. We just look at each other. We know we're all, we're all, we're all hurting inside. Thirteen miles from Rowling's Bakery in West Philadelphia, there's a grocery store two blocks from a stop on the Market Frankfurt L train. The surrounding neighborhood relies on this store, just like Rowling's Bakery. Also like Rowling's, the store was started by a family who came to America from the Middle East. My father is a, uh, an immigrant, so him and his brothers back in the 80s they all pulled their money together, and they opened up to get on their feet. This is Ray Mustafa. He's 48 and Palestinian, the same age as Israel Rolling. Ray's store is non-ethnic. It sells name-brand products like you'd find in any mainstream grocery store. The store used to be part of a family chain, but they've consolidated. I grew up in the business. I actually went to Temple University. I got a bachelor's degree. I worked for uh, the federal government for a short period of time, but I uh, decided to stay with the family just to keep the connection and try to grow together. Ray was born in America. His father was not. My father actually left Palestine when he was 16 years old. So he left because of, you know, the wars and there was no uh, opportunities for growing over there either education or, you know, financially. So he left through the port of Lebanon on a boat. Took him three months to get to Venezuela. So from Venezuela, um, he went to Colombia. And then from Colombia, he managed to get a visa. I don't know the exact story of how, but he came to the United States with a visa. He did odd jobs, washing dishes and working in restaurants and even selling... uh, bedding items like uh, sheets and stuff for uh, for beds and he just kept working and growing working and growing working and growing till they eventually pulled their money together and were able to carve out the american uh, dream for themselves ever since october 7th ray has felt the weight of the conflict he has friends and family in the region his parents have moved back to the west bank to protect the family homestead Proceeding with business as usual has been difficult. Since the conflict, this latest round of it, I've been literally glued to my TV or my phone. So I got the news on my computer, and then on my phone I'm always jumping around from X, TikTok, to Facebook, Instagram, just looking for different articles. It is beyond comprehension that a human being could go through what the people in Gaza are going through right now. While we were sitting in Ray's office, overlooking the checkout lines of his small grocery store, he shared a text exchange with an acquaintance of his in Gaza. Communication went dark not long after Israel launched its invasion. The last time I heard from him was October the 26th. What did he tell you on the 26th? He said, Alhamdulillah, we are good. That's all he said. The one before that, I asked him, how are you guys doing? He said, we're still alive up till now. Ma fi adil fi dunya. 
there's no justice in this world. Those were his words. Do you know what part of Gaza they're in? I think he's in the central part, if I'm not mistaken. He's in the central part. But there's no part of Gaza that's safe. There's really no part of the Gaza Strip that's safe. Ray constantly worries about the safety of his mother and father in the West Bank, another one of the occupied territories. Ray says the violence from Jewish settlers is getting worse. He says in some cases, Israeli soldiers accompany Jewish settlers who are going into Palestinian villages and setting houses and cars on fire. Nearly 240 Palestinians were killed in 2023 before Hamas attacked Israel, according to the United Nations. Family photos from less perilous times hang on the wall in his office. This is my mother and father back in Palestine. If you look in the background, you see those buildings? Those are all Israeli settlements. On the top of the mountain. On the top of them. This is on just one side. Ray has artwork and an old map on his walls. There is a map of what Palestine looked like before the territory was split up. He pointed to the area where his family is from. My family is going to be pretty much right about here, right in between Jerusalem and Ramallah. Jerusalem is going to be to the south of us, and Ramallah is going to be to the north of us. Ray references Palestine a lot. To him, that's what the land still is. The U.S. does not recognize Palestine as a country. Now, all the way over here, this is where the Gaza Strip is. So we're technically close to the border with, uh, with Jordan. We're on the, the West Bank, is what, it, is what it's called. The landscape is beautiful. You could probably compare it to the hills of Italy. If anybody ever been to Italy, it's beautiful hills. It's full of olive groves. This is like the symbol of Palestinians is the olive trees. My mother in front of her yard, she has uh, this beautiful grape tree. The grapes are right there, fig trees. They grow pretty much anything that's possible, from apples to oranges to uh, wheat. They, they love the land and uh, they love their country. As I was listening to Ray paint this picture of his family's land and the agriculture there, there was this tragic irony. Olive trees, olive branches, this is a symbol of peace. But in this region, there's been so much turmoil and anger. Whenever I speak to anybody, I always tell them, like, we have trees in our yard that are older than the state of Israel. Like, people just can't come out and say, like, this cycle of violence just happened out of nowhere. Like, hey, no, it didn't. We just want to live in peace and love and harmony. This is Ray's hope. But just like his homeland itself, it feels far away. Israel Rowling wasn't always this religious. Judaism was part of his life and identity from birth, but his family wasn't that observant. I grew up very Jewish, the culturally Jewish, right? That's what we like to use the word cultural, right? In this country, so very cultural Jewish. And obviously we had bagels and lox, right? I mean, we had challah. Like Ray, Israel's dad emigrated to the United States. Israel's father was from Haifa, a city in northern Israel. His mom was Czechoslovakian and Jewish, too. Israel started to take religion more seriously at Penn State. So what happened, I went there looking for a girlfriend. 
I end up coming out religious. You know, it doesn't. I'm not, I'm not sure if it works Wait, that way. You went to Penn State and yeah. came out religious. I know it's funny, isn't it? Yeah, I know. So, so, so I got connected with people. That's how it usually is connections with people, right? People generally become religious because you meet someone amazing. They're like, I want that. So I met people, and then I start asking my, me, myself a question. I said, if, if this is true, then I have to do it. I'm, I'm saying otherwise. I'm saying I'm better than God. If, if we're the people of the book and we have these laws, either I have to follow them or I don't follow them. I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want my, my kids to see that. So he decided to go to Israel to study. After that, he never looked back. He committed to becoming Orthodox. Since then, he has returned to Israel many times. He met his wife there. He has taken friends there. Because of his faith, and also the obvious, his name, he feels an inherent connection to the country. We're connected to Israel because we, we, we know that it doesn't always end up well. Now we have a place to run to. We have a place, we have an army. I mean, God protects us, but they're, they're the, uh, the messengers of that. So we never had that. For, uh, we did a long time ago, King David and Solomon. But before that, we haven't had that for a while. So why are we connected? Because if something gets bad here, we have a place to run to. This is another theme that tethers Israel Rowling and Ray Mustafa together, and people in the Jewish and Palestinian communities in general an attachment to the land that they feel deep in their bones. After the Holocaust and the end of World War II, the newly formed United Nations adopted what's known as the Partition Plan. The idea was to give Jews a safe haven, a country of their own, by dividing the British Mandate of Palestine into Arab and Jewish states. The creation of Israel in May of 1948 triggered the first Arab-Israeli war. Israel emerged victorious— and 750,000 Palestinians were forced to leave their homes when the territory was divided into Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. The Palestinians were now stateless. Who is entitled to what is at the heart of this conflict? The Hamas terror attack on Israel only reinforced Israel Rowling's belief that Jews need a home. It's a very small Jewish world. What are we, what are we uh, 12, 14 million Jews in the world? Right. People look at the atrocities which has happened in Israel and it's it was it's terrible. I mean, terrible. I mean, just like the Holocaust. But that's kind of been our tradition in life. It's kind of that's why we end up being so small. October 7th was the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust ended in 1945. When you talk to your friends in Israel right now, oh, right, what, right. What, what are like, right, what so, are your conversations like? So what are they it's, telling it's very you? T- so so what's going on is very tough. I mean, the amount of stories coming up, people are going from Shiva to Shiva. You know, uh, Shiva is a mourning period for Jews. So it's really, it's really um, happiness and not happiness, but um, it's, a, it's a balance because we, there's so many, uh, there's so many unity. We're very unified right now, the Jewish people, with, with religious, non-religious, not affiliated. Because if uh, anything Hitler taught us is he, if you are one quarter Jewish, I'm going to kill you. So even, even the people that aren't that affiliated are suddenly now starting to find roots in their Judaism because they know they're also a target. It's been hard for Jewish people to disassociate certain aspects of what happened on October 7th and what's happened since with events that unfolded before, during, and after the Holocaust. It's been a trigger. It's caused generational trauma to bubble back up to the surface. Israel Rowling's maternal grandmother survived the Holocaust. 
She's 93. I have my grandmother who I, was, I went to visit a couple of weeks. She's just crying because she's seeing things that she saw when she grew up. She was sent to the Auschwitz death camp, but lived because of one sudden, unexplained decision. She was in the line going to gas, holding her mother's hand. She saw on the other, other line was like her aunt and some of her cousins. And she said in herself, why am I on that watch? I should be with them. So Israel's grandmother ran. She ran from the line of people headed to the gas chamber to the line of people who were being given work assignments. She doesn't know why till this day. She said it's Yad Hashem, it was divine providence, that, that she ran over there. First of all, that, that a Nazi didn't see her and shoot her was a shot, was a miracle. And, and now I'm here today because of that one decision she made. It is a heavy story. Jewish people aren't alone in experiencing generational trauma. Palestinians have their own, too. The current conflict has only served to renew it. Back at the grocery store, Ray told me how his paternal grandfather was involved in fighting the British over Israel. It was under a British mandate, so there was a war with the British colonizers at that time. And then it went from the British to the Jewish immigrants that came in, and then the Zionist extremists, the radical Zionist extremists that started to come in. So it was never-ending for my grandfather, from my great-grandfather. My great-grandfather actually was killed by the, by the British uh, government. He was shot by the British government. So it's like a generational uh, thing. Even though Ray's father left their home in the West Bank when he was 16 and started his own family in America, he and Ray's mom made sure their kids knew their roots. Ray is one of six children. They always had a connection to Palestine, even though they had a life over here. They lived over here for many years, but they wouldn't stay for more than three years consecutively without going back to Palestine. And when we were younger, my father would always make it a point during the summer break to take us for a vacation, to show us our house, our land, our, our culture, just to keep us attached to the land. Palestine is something that the love and the feel of it is just passed down from generation to generation. Even though I was born in the United States, the love and the connection that I have for Palestine is as strong as my father has, the one that was born there, as strong as the one that his father had that was born there. It's a generational thing. So we pass it down from one generation to the other. Later in our chat, Ray described a traumatic experience of his own back in 2000 when he was on a mission in the occupied territories. There was a peaceful protest. I was in Bethlehem at the time. There was a raid in one of the refugee camps. We wanted to enter the refugee camp to see what was really going on and how could we help people. When Ray and his mission got to the front of the camp, he says they were confronted by an Israeli tank and soldiers. Ray and the group held up signs to identify themselves as part of a mission. Clear as day, signs. While we were approaching them, they literally opened live fire rounds on the ground in front of us. And I was actually hit with shrapnel from a bullet, and it went inside of my, uh, of my ankle. They weren't trying to kill us. They shot on the floor directly in front of us. Leave. You have no business here. The tension was a precursor to the Second Intifada, or uprising, which started a few days later. 
This was in 2000. Ray was still there and describes the aftermath of Israel's response. I would go inside people's houses and there'd be big holes in the wall of their house. What the Israelis would do was when they enter a house, they would cut a hole through the wall, go through it to the next house and the next house and the next house. And these are families living in there, mind you. During the fighting or the invasion, the family can't leave. So while you're in your house, the Israeli soldiers just break in, search you, do whatever they want to to you, and then cut a hole through your wall to go to the next house and do the same thing. This is stuff I've seen and experienced with my own, with my own eyes. So yes, just as there is generational trauma for Israel rolling and Jews, there is generational trauma for Ray and Palestinians. The news organizations always dehumanized Palestinians and showed the world that we were the terrorists. They dehumanized us. Any form of Palestinian re- resistance is considered illegitimate. They're going to throw the terrorist label on it no matter what it is. So if I'm going to sit here and defend the Palestinians, they're going to say he's a terrorist sympathizer. Once you hear those words, you close your ears. You don't want to hear the stories that I'm telling you. I asked Ray what it's been like to carry this burden, incidents from his own life and from the lives of his family members. As far as me and my family, that actually, I can't associate trauma with that. I could attribute strength with that. It gave us strength to keep going, to grow, to do better, to prosper, to not give up, to continue fighting from generation to generation. I didn't know my great-grandfather, but I knew he was a great man. I knew he fought against the British. My grandfather also fought. So it's a generational struggle to try to maintain our land and our freedom and our dignity. So I took strength out of that, not trauma. It's clear Israel and Ray think certain things need to happen for their communities to survive. How do they see this ending? And how do they talk about this with their kids? I hug my kids and I squeeze them like there's no tomorrow. Every time they walk past me, I tell them, come here. And I want them to give me a hug. And I, I actually cherish that moment. You look at your own life. Bad stuff happens. Right? We have to thank God when good things happen, when bad stuff happens. I mean, so unfortunately, every once in a while, God gets, has to give us a reminder to go back. More about how these fathers are navigating the war and the trauma with their families when we come back. I'm Carol McKenzie. This is The Baker and the Grocer, Stories of the Israel-Hamas War, from KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From the outside looking in, there's nothing about a grocery store in West Philadelphia that would distinguish it as being owned by a Palestinian. But inside, from his office perch above the checkout lines, Ray Mustafa, the owner, talks with pride about Philadelphia's Palestinian community. There's a big Palestinian community in Philadelphia. Um, The exact figure, uh, I really don't know. The majority of them are successful people, business owners, lawyers, doctors, pharmacists, students. They're very productive. Homeowners. When we have a wedding, it won't be uncommon to have a thousand guests at a wedding. That's not uncommon. 
when we go to pray Fridays at the mosque, every mosque is filled to capacity. Being Palestinian is an inherent part of Ray's identity, but so is being an American. And in some ways, it feels like his country has turned on him. I'm an American. Everything I'm talking about right now is Palestine, but I'm an American. I was born here. Crazy Phillies fan, crazy Eagles fan, crazy Sixers fan. But you know what? When they came out and started saying we support Israel blatantly and a moment of silence for Israel without mentioning anything about Palestine, I stopped watching them. I stopped supporting them. Every year when the Phillies are in the playoffs, Red October, my favorite time of the year, my favorite time of the year. I did not watch one game after that. I will not support them. In Cheltenham Township, the Rolling family has carved out a role in the region's Jewish community. Their kosher bakery across from the Elkins Park train station has been around for generations. Israel Rolling, the owner, treats customers like family. David, hi. It's my good friend David. He's actually going to Israel right now. He's going to Israel to volunteer. He's going to Israel to volunteer. Whether you're a first-timer or you've been getting bagels and challah there forever. Since the Hamas attack, there's been lots of talk about the war in the shop. Other stuff for we, this we, we, We're taking like three suitcases full of stuff. Tell us what you're going to be doing over there. I have no idea. They tell us when we get there, they'll tell us what There's plenty do. of stuff to do. But this is his umpteen time going. How many times have you been to Israel? This will be my 46th trip. So you know the lay of the land, at least. You're not going familiar. (laughs) For Ray and Israel, following the war has become part of their everyday lives. They might be on opposite sides, but their deep-rooted connections to the conflict and how they're experiencing it are actually similar. Ray and Israel also share this belief. The stakes here are incredibly high. They each believe the existence of their people is in peril. Ray and Israel are both fathers. Not only that, they each have six children, all in a wide age range. Ray has three boys and three girls, five to 21. His youngest, Omar, could tell something was wrong after October 7th. We got a call from the school the first week of uh, the events that have been taking place. The teacher called and said that Omar is crying. He's saying that people are stealing his land and they're bombing and they're killing people. Now, mind you, he's five years old. So speaking to the teacher, we explained to her that he might have caught a glimpse of what's going on on TV and asked questions. And we just explained to him what was going on. I asked her, like, would you like me to come pick him up? She's like, no, like, he's fine. We consoled him. He's fine. I just want him to hear your voice so that he could feel safe. This is yet another ripple effect of the war that Ray and Israel have to navigate. They've got to talk to their kids about it. Ray is making sure his older ones are informed. I want to make sure that when they speak to people, they are aware of the words that they use so they could use the right language when they speak. Like, I don't want them to go around saying, yeah, the Jews did this to us, because that could be taken as being an anti-Semitic statement. I make sure to teach them that Jew is a religion, extreme Zionism is an ideology. So I made sure to hammer that in with them. 
The last thing I want is for them to think that all Jewish people are bad. It's very important. Israel Rowling's six children are 2 to 18. So how do you talk about this with your kids, particularly with the, the age differences? Well, you mean the, the, the situation in Israel yeah. and everything? So it's, so it's difficult. So first of all, if you're, if you're growing up Orthodox, you learn about Jewish history. What's the first thing we learn about Egypt? They're trying to kill us. You know, so it's in, in our history. But we survived and we flourished and we stayed Jewish. We, you know, we stayed traditional. One of Israel's rabbis used to talk to him about serenity, that with serenity comes peace of mind. Israel has tried to instill that kind of mindset in his children. So if my kids are grown up and they believe that God's in control of everything and that we have to do the best we can and be the best person that we can, but we know he's in control. And whatever he does is for the good, even when things are, even when, during difficult times, right? When do you grow? Do you grow, grow spiritually when things are all going great or do you grow when things are tough? So things are tough right now, right? So we're pulling together. So maybe we get stronger, not weaker. So that's what you kind of infuse in your children, that God has a plan. We don't understand it, but I don't want a God that I understand everything. If I can understand that God, then he's not God, right? I know what he wants me to do. He's got a plan. So if I can instill that into our children with my wife, then they're going to be okay through life. Israel's conversations with his children aren't just one way. Like Ray's five-year-old, they can tell when something's wrong. With anti-Semitism on the rise, a few of Israel's kids have been asking him if he's remembered to lock the doors at night. A lot of people are more nervous. It's true. Everyone's looking, trying to get security for, for the synagogues because that's a target. Here in the bakery, I mean, I tend to, I mean, I, this neighbor is amazing. So maybe I should be more. My dad kind of taught me not to be afraid. So I try to take a little bit more precautions and stuff like that. I try to be smarter. I always tell a Jew, you should look over your shoulder. Small businesses in Philadelphia and beyond have been targets of not just pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian protests, but vandalism for having even the slightest associations with either side, which is why Ray asked us not to use the name of his store. You run your market here in the city and I'm wondering if you have faced any threats because of the business you run or your family, or as you just said, you're very outspoken. I mean, I've gotten nothing but love from everybody I interact with on a daily basis, from my customers, from my friends, from people that I deal with, you know, in banks, in the business. Everybody sends their thoughts, their love, and their messages for me. I don't have any fear from that. What I do fear is trolls, people from the outside. Because most people, they're cowards. They're not going to come confront you face to face. But if they know you have a certain type of business, if they know you're a student somewhere, if they know you work for a certain company, they could start putting pressure on the company to fire you. These undemocratic actions are the ones that keep us going through this cycle of violence. An estimated 1,200 people were killed by Hamas on October 7th. When we published this podcast in mid-December of 2023, the death toll in Gaza was around 20,000. Gaza's health ministry says around two-thirds are women and children. This is a genocide that's going on right now in the Gaza Strip. 
Palestinians have lived 75 years of injustice that has been whitewashed and protected by Western governments. And it's time that everybody knows the truth and everybody sees what's going on and demands an end to this occupation, demands an end to this injustice. Nobody will be able to live in peace unless the Palestinians are able to live in peace. We're not going to go away. Ray is proud. He was born and raised in the United States. He says he doesn't take his freedom, his rights, or his dignity for granted. One of the hardest things for him to reconcile about the war is that his own government is giving financial and military support to Israel. As an American, that reality, the tax-paying American, I mean, essentially, your taxes are... are paying for the killing of my people. Yes, that's very unfortunate. But me, as a Palestinian, as somebody who was born and raised in the United States, I have my voice, I have my vote, if enough of us come together and outvote these politicians that just want to keep their seats and keep getting us into war after war after war, nothing will change. But an educated mess that knows exactly what is going on, we could actually start voting these politicians out and making the United States and the world a better place. At the bakery, Israel Rolling doesn't think there's any gray area when it comes to October 7th and Israel's response. Should we maybe just as humans be more concerned about other humans that sure in, but in these again, discussions? 100%, but again, we have to go back. If, 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 would, would there be less criticism of Israel if we just, if going after military stuff? Probably not. They'd still be critical on us. So I would put the question, the onus on the other person. If you're asking me, I don't, know, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Do you expect us just to take it? No, well, what, what's the answer on the other side? Because I don't hear answers on the other side. Even right now, if we don't have a buffer zone, it will happen again and again. We have history to show us. We've constantly. This is not a. This is what they call a cycle of violence or something. This is, this is not like the, the first time this has happened. This is the knot that's so hard to untangle. There has been so much opposition and back and forth between Israelis and Palestinians for so long, it's created this unshakable cycle. In the case of Israel and Ray, they each expressed some empathy for the other side, but still couldn't quite condemn outright some of the most damning developments in the latest round of the conflict. Israel first. I'm not talking about Hamas. I'm talking about the Palestinian people in Gaza. So when you say that, and when you see what's happening in Gaza and what the Israeli military is doing there right now, what are what are your what are your thoughts on that? Right. So, so it's, a good, it's a good question. First of all, we, we we believe that every life is like is like a generation, but we we also believe we don't know we're not a turn the other cheek religion either, right? If somebody's coming in your house to kill your family, you kill them. It's terrible. It's terrible. But I personally look at every death that happens there is on Hamas, not on Israel. You know, they, they, they went in and murdered people horrifically. So it's, it's, a, it's a complex situation, but not complex, meaning what, what Israel has to do. If they don't protect their citizens, it's going to happen again. Now, Ray, Hamas. Yes. Do you 
maybe wish that Hamas wouldn't have done this to begin with, that, that, that the attack that triggered this entire war, do you place any kind of blame on them or for, for what's happening? Um, I'm going to start out by saying that our religion condemns and teaches us the Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, anytime he entered a war, he always told his troops, you don't kill no women, you don't kill no children, you don't uproot no trees, and you don't start any fires. So our religion gave us the rules of war before the Geneva Convention did. The killing of civilians is condemned throughout the world, and it's condemned from Muslims, period. There's no going back and forth on that. Palestinians have been going through what we see on TV right now for the past 75 years. We're being displaced. We're being massacred. Our land is being stolen. Right now, the devastation and the death that's in the Gaza Strip, it's ungodly. It's ungodly. It's unfathomable. The brain cannot comprehend what is going on. Do we continue to be submissive victims and just thank you for letting us breathe the air? There's no dignity in the life of a Palestinian on the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. If some people are this dug in, how can there be progress? The obvious follow-up to the questions I asked Israel and Ray was, how do they think all of this ends? Is there any solution that would satisfy Israelis and Palestinians? Israel sounded matter-of-fact about it. How do you see there ever being peace? Do you see there ever being peace in that region? And, Only and how? Only if you have a partner. Unless you have a partner, there can't be peace. Right? You have a marriage. Unless both people want to make it work, it's not going to work. We've tried. Maybe it seems one-sided, and everybody always wants to think there's two sides. Right? Because that's how our or Western, that's how we think there's two sides. It's not always two sides. Sometimes one kid is mean to the other kid. That's what happened. And it's hard for us to admit that. We as Westerners, we don't like to say that because, well, it's got to be nuanced and this and that. It's not nuanced. It, there's, it's, some things are just black and white. If there's one thing Israel and Ray might agree upon, it could be that. The situation is black and white. People are witnessing a slaughter of a people. The Gaza Strip is no larger than the city of Philadelphia. The population between 2.3 or 2.4 million people, for the past 16 years, it has been under a military blockade, meaning nothing is allowed in or out unless it's approved by the Israeli government. It's basically, prison is the wrong term to use because prison people who do and break the law go to prison. So I don't want to use the word that it's a prison. It's a concentration camp where the death is at a slower rate. It's a slow death. 75 years of Palestinians being displaced, 75 years of Palestinian being dehumanized, 75 years of them not having the basic human rights that everybody has a right to have. Israel and Ray are on different sides, make no mistake about it. But for people with views as divergent as theirs, the parallels are many. Here's one final similarity. How Israel and Ray are coping. 
what they're falling back on during a time when they think there's a threat to their people's existence. Both men are anchored by their faith. Israel is sticking to the same approach he says Jewish people have used through the generations. So how do you, with what happened on October 7th, how do you reconcile that? That's a question. So it's funny because I, I've had these conversations with people that are angry at God. So one of the things that brought me to religion, actually, I was a history major in college. And one of the things that started made me even question more is looking at Jewish history. Looking at Jewish history, we're all these, these ancient civilizations that try to kill us. We're still here. So in my mind, of course God's with us. God wants us to be here. So that, that itself is a reason for me to believe. At various times during our conversation, Ray actually sounded hopeful. And this is why. For the first time in his life, he thinks that because of social media, the narrative is changing, that more people have their ears, eyes, and minds open to the pro-Palestinian cause than ever before. You still have some hope for the future. You still have hope for change. I mean, hope comes from your belief in God. Otherwise, there's no point in this life with what's going on and what you are seeing. You see the people in the Gaza Strip, everything that they're going through. They're always calling out to God. They're always praying. They're always hopeful that what they're going through is going to give their kids a better future. If you don't have hope and you don't have a strong connection to your creator, God, you'll be lost in this world. So that bond is not broken with our creator, with praying that, okay, we're going through this right now, but it's to create a better future for our children. The Baker and the Grocer, Stories of the Israel-Hamas War, is a production of KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Our producer is Brian Seltzer. KYW News Radio's news director is Kevin McCory. Tom Rickert is KYW News Radio's assistant brand manager and director of podcasting. Christina Coppicer is KYW News Radio's brand manager and director of digital content. Special thanks to Israel Rowling and Ray Mustafa for sharing their personal stories. I'm Carol McKenzie. For continuing coverage of how the Israel-Hamas war is affecting our region and the rest of the world, listen to KYW News Radio on 103.9 FM in Philadelphia, on the free Odyssey app, and follow us on social media at KYW News Radio.